I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 10. So we consider, uh, again, the first Sunday evening of the month, working our way through the Psalter. This is the great songbook of the church. Psalm chapter 10, in some ways, a very difficult song because it is uh, prayers and songs that I think perhaps will make us feel rather uncomfortable, and yet the psalmist asks questions um, that really resonates with questions that I think many of us fear even uh, to utter out loud. Psalm chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are that there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. And as for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down. They fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and fathers, we come before you with so many questions regarding what your word says. We come in humble submission, knowing that what you say is true, and we ask that your spirit would so bring clarity to our thoughts that we would think your thoughts after you and so believe the things you call us to believe and to do those things that you call us to do. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Where are you, Lord? I think it's funny how the psalmist here asks the very question that we so often think but are afraid to utter out loud. And we'd imagine this particular scenario. You're a violinist. You've been 
uh, training on the violin for years, practicing your scales and your arpeggios, your various uh, 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 um, practices that your, your teacher has called upon you to do, all the sight reading, but then today all of those skills are put to the test. Your instructor places in your hand Felix Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor. I heard that for the first time this week on the radio. I said, oh man, who could ever play something like that? How could somebody make it to that stage in their life in practicing and mastering this particular performance piece? Well, if you recall last month when we looked at Psalm chapter 9, we, re- we noticed that Psalms 9 and 10 are intended to be, to be read together. They're distinct psalms. And yet, Psalms 9 and 10 form an acrostic. It's a, a Hebrew poem. It's kind of like the ABCs. Instead of the ABC, though, it's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and so on and so forth. And Psalm 9 is a, a poetic acrostic using the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And of course, Psalm 10 is the second uh, half of the Hebrew alphabet. So it tells us that under the Spirit's inspiration, these are to be read back to back. And uh, we might think perhaps of Psalm chapter 9 as uh, the ABCs. These are the scales that you learn to learn what it means regarding the justice of God. These are your, uh, your, your addition and subtraction tables that you're called to master. Because you ask the question in Psalm 9, what is justice? We are told in Psalm chapter 9, justice simply put is this, that God vindicates the righteous and he condemns the wicked. Sounds very simple, but now that we make it to Psalm 10, we're given the very difficult performance piece, this very difficult question that is set before us. We could have just as easily used the example of learning your, your, your multiplication tables in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 being given uh, some type of trigonomic uh, uh, formula. Because now we're wrestling with the question, if God punishes the wicked, why is it that the wicked continue to prosper? And yet, once again, Psalm 10 is given to us to train us to know that God is not silent, that he is not absent, that God is one who hears the cry of the afflicted. But we see, even before us, that opening verse, if God is just, that question that burns throughout this psalm, you can feel it in the whole structure of the psalm, if God is just, Where is he as the violent men get away with murder? I'd like us to consider this particular passage in two sections. First, we'll consider the problem. You see here in verses 1 to 11. And then secondly, the prayer in verses 12 to 18. So the problem and the prayer. I remember when I was in seminary a number of years ago, uh, I was... uh, uh, living on campus, and one of the students who lived across the hall from me was had been a pastor for 15, 20 years. He was from Nigeria, and he'd come to the States uh, to get some theological training. He had never been to seminary before, and yet he had been a pastor for 20 years. His name was Hassan. He was from Nigeria. Uh, his wife and children had been behind, uh, left behind as he was here studying for this short period of time, as he spent a few semesters abroad. And yet one day, Hassan came into one of our Hebrew classes, just absolutely heartbroken in tears. He was a man, a very gentleman, a very kind man who kept to himself largely. But when somebody asked what was wrong, he 
began to tell us what had happened. Uh, Boko Haram, if you're familiar with the terrorist organization, had raided his home village and has bur- had burned his home to the ground. His family had escaped, praise the Lord, but they had to flee somewhere else and live uh, uh, with another family until he can make it back out there and they could figure out what to do. It was uh, a very militant uh, Islamic organization that was known not only for burning buildings, but for burning people. They were known for arson, abduction, and murder. And here, the psalmist describes the actions of men who are not unlike uh, these sorts of groups that we read about in the news. In verse 2, you see it here. The ESV says that they hotly pursue the poor. Uh, rendered literally, it's that they set the poor on fire. They concoct schemes to terrorize the helpless. You see that here in verse 18. In pursuit of their insatiable lust for unjust gain. They have no regard for the justice of God in all that they do. By their deeds they curse and disregard the fear of the Lord. It's the very thing we've been learning the other weeks as we are working our way through Proverbs in the evenings. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and yet they discard all wisdom. They pursue their own ends. They devour one another. The psalmist describes them as arrogant, verse 2, as boastful, verse 3, as full of pride. In verse 4, their thoughts are governed by one simple thought, that there is no God and I will do whatever I want. And here's the great conundrum. Verse 5, they succeed in everything that they do. They prosper at all times. It's not simply that the wicked have tried to do something and uh, their plots have been foiled, but the psalmist looks around and sees the devastation that is wrought in these local villages as wicked men continue to do whatever they want and they continue to get away with it. If we as believers confess that God is a God of justice, why does this happen? That is the question of the psalm. It is the problem. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away, the psalmist cries. There's so much trouble that surrounds us. Why do you hide yourself? And yet the psalmist knows. Here is a man of the earth. You see that here? That's really striking language at the end of the psalm in verse 18. He is a man of the earth. He takes no thought of heaven. You see this here in verse 5, that the wicked prowl about with, with horse blinders, except instead of the horse blinders being uh, horizontal, the horse blinders are vertical. Look at what it says here in verse 5. His ways prosper at all times, yet your judgments are on high. They're out of his sight. He does not take thought of what is above the horizon. He does not notice that the Lord actually sits enthroned on high. He's claiming the Lord doesn't see as he's wearing his visor over his eyes, failing to take notice of the fact that the Lord is actually taking note of everything that the wicked do. God does see. The problem is not God's blindness. The problem is the blindness of the wicked. They fail to see the very trap that they are setting themselves up for. 
Three times we are told here in this psalm as the wicked that says in his heart. He continually speaks to himself, verse 6, verse 11, verse 13. Continually, I, I think, trying to convince himself that he is invincible, that he is accountable to no one. You know, that, 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 it's not really the emphasis of the psalm here, but I think when you compare it with the other psalms, it's rather striking when, when the psalmist elsewhere will speak of the wicked being, being uh, frightened by, by, by the rustling of a leaf. One almost gets the impression that he has to keep saying this because he's trying to convince himself how invincible he is when the reality is he is not. He suffers from tunnel vision, unable and unwilling to see God seated on high as the king who reigns above all things. And so the wicked sets his sights on the helpless around him thinking that God does not see so I can pursue without retribution, those who are defenseless, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor, the widow, the unfortunate and the helpless. He's described as a lion seeking to devour whoever he wishes to devour. By his speech, he seeks to defraud them in the courts. Here, apparently, is a wicked man who holds some degree of power. When he speaks here uh, in verse 7 of the cursings, uh, the the Hebrew really insinuates this this idea of false oaths that are being uttered. Here is a guy who is lying under oath. He is perjurious in all that he does. He knows how to manipulate the courts of human justice to satiate his own greed at the expense of those who have no advocate. His mouth is a reservoir of lies. Under his tongue ferments a basin of iniquity and deceit. He might say things, but underneath the tongue is is the Hoover Dam of iniquity. It gushes with nothing but deceitfulness and lies. But here we find that this wicked man prospers not only in the courts, but also in the community. He lays an ambush against the most vulnerable in ancient society. He engages in really human trafficking. It says he lays a net. He lurks in the shadows. He abducts the passerby. He hacks them in a malevolent fury. These are things that we read about even in the news, and yet this is not something that is taking place in some far remote foreign country for the psalmist. This is taking place within his own town, within his own nation. It's taking place among the people of God. The violence is pornographic. His eyes are full of violence. It reminds us of the language that Peter himself uses in his letter, that eyes full of adultery. Uh, they, They seek to be satiated by violence and greed. They long to do harm. And in the midst of all this, the helpless are crushed. They sink down, they fall by his might. He prospers all the time. It says here, it's very interesting when it says that he puffs at them. You're like, what does that mean? Uh, One commentator uh, says that this might, it's it's an odd word, it doesn't doesn't occur an awful lot. That's why it's so difficult, but it seems to be something like he inflames at them. Really connecting the dots back to uh, verse 2, that here's one who sets the poor on fire. He burns at his adversaries. Anyone who opposes him, he lashes out. He gets away with murder. 
He says in his heart, he boasts in his triumph. Verse 4, the Lord is not. Verse 11, God has forgotten. Verse 13, the Lord will not call me to account. Verse 6, I shall not be moved. I am invincible. I think it's rather interesting. On the one hand, he says the Lord does not, is not, there is no God. And yet, he'll say, well, the Lord will not call me to account. There doesn't seem to even be consistency in his thought. All he does, he continues to dig his heels into the sand, claiming that there is no one who will destroy him. He will endure from generation to generation. Nobody will be able to call him to account. That's the problem that the psalmist sees. I think what's rather frightening is that the prayer of the psalmist sounds somewhat similar to the boast of the wicked. Lord, why do you hide your face? Verse 1, and then in verse 11, the wicked says, oh, the Lord has hidden his face. He will not see. And yet they're coming from two very different vantage points, aren't they? Two very different types of questions. The one is boasting, convinced that he is invincible. The other is looking, seeing uh, the reality that's set before him and asking the question, if God is just, what accounts for the wickedness that we see in front of us? Where is God in all of this? Is he hiding? One's almost reminded of Elijah's mocking retort to the, to the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Hey, did your God go to the bathroom? Is it Taco Tuesday? Where did he go? And yet the psalmist seems to be asking the same question, Lord, where are you? Are the wicked too powerful for you to topple them? Have you gone into hiding? Has there finally been somebody to meet your match? Absolutely not. Here we're given the great assurance and the, the, uh, the confident prayer of the psalmist, though he is confused by what is going around, he sets his hope in the Lord knowing because he has learned the ABCs of God's justice in Psalm chapter 9, that God does what? He vindicates the righteous, he defends the helpless, and he will utterly condemn the wicked. That is the great truth that he clings to, even in the midst of this very difficult problem. So he prays. He notices that that is the very thing that the wicked has failed to do. The wicked have failed to look up. They have failed to see God in heaven, so the defenseless and the psalmist, oh, they do what the wicked does not. They, they set their sights on heaven. They say, arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand and strike the slayer. Do not forget the cry of the afflicted. Call the wicked to account. Make them accountable for the things that they have done. There's a certain wordplay that's going on here. In the first half of the psalm, uh, on two or three different occasions, the psalmist says that the, um, that the wicked says that the Lord will not call to account um, and, and that uh, the wicked does not seek the Lord. It's actually the same word there in the Hebrew. Well, now, uh, the one who seeks the Lord calls for the Lord to call them to account. He's, he's using the same word over and over again. It's a uh, something of a wordplay that is going on, but he says, Lord, this is your earth. Verse 18, isn't that striking? 
That, that word land there could be translated as earth. I think that, that since, since he is the king of heaven and earth, I think verse 18 is better to understand this as, uh, uh, as, as that of earth and not simply land. But the, he says here, this is your earth. I'm sorry, verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. It's his land. The wicked are just exercising squatter, what they think are squatter rights. They set, they've set up a, a, a bulwark. They've set up a fortress that said, I shall not be moved. And the Lord says, this is my territory, bub. You are, you, you are going to be moved. You're about to get an eviction notice. And so the psalmist says, call the wickedness to account until wickedness is no more. This is a thoroughgoing justice. This isn't just a slap on the wrists. This isn't a situation where the wicked can bribe his way out of court. He cannot sweet talk his way into just getting a fine instead of the chair. I'm from Florida, so I use the chair as a electric chair. I don't know what y'all do for... Anyways. The point here is that God is not hidden in his face. He is there and he is not silent. It turns out the Lord sitting in heaven, he's not just sitting, kind of just with a blind eye. As it were, the Lord has his eyes directly set on the wicked and he's taking note. Of all mischief and wrong, every act of injustice, every act of impression against the godly. He takes note of all vexation, all heartache, all grief. The Lord will call all of these things to account. Why? Because the Lord is king and he reigns forever and ever. That is the centerpiece of Psalm chapter 9 and that is the high point here of chapter 10. It is the kingship of the Lord God Almighty who will call the wicked to account. It doesn't look like it right now. But it doesn't mean it's not true. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so the wicked are merely squatters. And they will be removed if they do not repent. And their arrogance, they may revel in their atheistic lusts for a time. But the Lord hears the cry of the humble. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. This is really an encouragement to those who suffer under the thumb of ungodly persecution. Lord, where are you? Why is it that these things continue to happen to us? Are you silent? It's one of the, the vexing pastoral problems that you see in the book of Hebrews. Where's the Lord? If Christ reigns, why do we not yet see it? And yet we are told here, verse 17 and 18, He is that refuge to everyone who calls upon Him. He will vindicate the helpless. He will defend the defenseless. You can be sure of that. So the exhortation is to put your hope, put your trust, put your faith in the Lord and His anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when we hear the description of the wicked, it's easy to have our minds drawn to the work of those organizations overseas like Boko Haram or the the National Liberation Army or ISIS. 
Wicked organizations indeed, truly men of violence. But if we simply relegate the problem to those types of organizations, we have not done justice to this particular passage. If you notice here in verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Paul cites that exact verse in Romans chapter 3. Let me read this to you. What then? Are we better than they? Oh Lord, I thank you I'm not like Boko Haram. Right? Ah, Paul says, are, are we better than them? Are we better than the Gentiles? For there is none righteous, no, not one. They have all turned aside and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul cites this particular passage as scriptural evidence, not just of extreme wickedness, but rather that this is characteristic of the wickedness of the whole human race. We have too rosy a view of human nature. And we possess too low a view of God's almighty justice. God may delay His justice. But that does not mean that He is absent. It does not mean that He is blind to the injustices that are going about. And it does not mean that He is indifferent from it. It simply means that He has delayed it. In one sense, that's frustrating. In other sense, that's good news. Because what if the Lord struck us down the very first time we sinned and acted wickedly? There will be a reckoning, a calling to account on the last day, but the Lord delays His justice that His mercy might go forth, that it might go forth to the nations, that He might call out and beckon to sinners to turn to Him, that He is the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. As far as the east is from the west, he will cast our sins into the sea. He will remove those sins from us because he will remember them no more. If you would but look up. Consider the Lord on high. Fallen humanity, we find, suffers from a sort of vertical tunnel vision. We said earlier, it's like having horse blinders on, but having them on the wrong way. You're not able to look up. You're unwilling to contemplate the kingship of Christ. And that's why the opening chapters of Hebrews speak of this, that Christ is not simply waiting to be enthroned as king at some point in the future during some type of millennium. Rather, in these last days, God has spoken by His Son, who has already sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Christ reigns now. And the, whole, the good news, a part of our message as ambassadors of Christ is that period between the first and second advents of our Savior is that this whole period in world history could be subsumed under one heading in a large world history book. And it is all of Christ's enemies being turned into His footstool. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says, oh, we don't see it yet because we're, it's in the process. This is something that is ongoing, but there will come a day when this will become definitive. It will become final. <coughs> Excuse me. But for now, we know, we, we see those glimpses of glory where the Lord defends his own glory. He brings them through various trials, and even if they fall by the sword, 
at the hands of their oppressor. Not even death will have the last word. So final is the Lord's answer that death itself will be undone. And so we as the church, we who have been raised with Christ, it's Paul's language in Ephesians and Colossians and elsewhere, that though we still await the future resurrection of the dead, spiritually we have been seated in heavenly places with our precious Savior who rules over all things. And now, though we undergo a cross, though we undergo trial and great persecution and affliction and sorrow, we know this, that the Lord reigns forever and ever. And so Paul says we are to do what? You are to set your mind on things above, not the things of the earth. Don't fall into the same trap as the wicked where they fail to contemplate heaven. We are called to consider that great truth that there is one King, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection and ascension marks His coronation. That is His triumph. That is His victory. It proves His triumph over death. He has ascended on dying. He has already taken His seat. He has been crowned king, and now here is the process of his enemies being made subject to him. Either by being reconciled to him through the preaching of the gospel, or being subjected and triumphed over on that last day when he comes to save his people and to condemn the wicked. All things have been made subject to him. Nothing lays outside of his control, even though at present it does not feel that way. It's the very thing we considered last Sunday morning, right? It was Reformation Sunday. We did Psalm 46. Jesus himself referencing that uh, when, when he speaks of the end days. And he says, oh, when, uh, when the seas foam and melt and the mountains quake and tremble, using that language of Psalm 46, he says, take heart, look up. For your redemption draws nigh. Your Savior is soon to appear. It's the great hope of the church. So what is it that we should do? How is this psalm to instruct us and help us as pilgrims through this present wicked age? Well, I think there are two things. You see them here in verse 17. The first is this. To pray. The Lord really is a refuge in times of trouble. The Lord hears. He has given us His Spirit. We, he will not leave us as orphans, our Savior has promised us. He gives us the Spirit of comfort to comfort us in all of our afflictions, even though the Spirit might not necessarily deliver us right away from that trial. He does something greater. greater. He delivers us through the trial. Our Savior, our Heavenly Father, has fashioned for each one of us a cross. The purpose of the cross is that we might die. So that Christ's resurrection power might be made manifest, which shows a, a greater power, that the Lord delivers us from all trouble or that the Lord delivers us th through it all, even to the point where we die. And the Lord says, oh, well, guess what? Not even death has the last word here. So great is the power of God that God's power is made manifest even in our weakness. So in this process, as painful as it is, we entrust ourselves to the Lord. We pray to Him, knowing that we are partaking in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. We're not doing this alone. 
That the Spirit takes those sufferings and He molds us and shapes us to look like Christ. Painful as it is, it's one of the most glorious things that could be done now because what would you rather have? The riches of Egypt or the reproaches of Christ? It's the very thing Moses was confronted with when we read about Hebrews chapter 11. He said, ah, I choose the reproaches of Christ to be greater than all the riches and wealth that the kingdoms of this world have to offer. The Lord hears the cry of the afflicted. Know that. Cling to that. Even if all of your senses, you know, know, the eyes, uh, your ears, uh, everything around you wants to tell you that it's the exact opposite, this is what faith is. is to cling to the promises of God that God's promises are more certain and more real than the world around us and things as they appear to be. So cling to Christ. Second thing, persevere. As it tells us here in verse 17, the Lord strengthens the weary heart. That would not be a great benefit to us if we didn't have times where we need our weary hearts strengthened. But the Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. He will preserve us that we might persevere faithfully because we are seeking a kingdom that has more certain foundations. The glorious city of Zion that will appear on the day of Christ's return. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would use the Psalter uh, and, and, and this psalm in particular to so shape our heart, to be conformed to your image, to love the things that you love, to hate what you hate, and to cry out with the rest of the host of heaven, how long, O Lord, till you fulfill your promises. How we long to see your son face to face. Make Christ our chief desire, we pray, asking all of these things in his name. Amen.